the economy in general, and fourth, more specifically, high prices, inflation rising. Those are the, the top four. To the answer to that question, what are the most important problems facing this country today? A better, more incisive question was asked, getting to the roots of, of issues, was asked by the London Times roughly about a century ago, and the question was put this way in the paper. What's wrong with the world? Just getting a little bit deeper. What's wrong with the world? And in answer to that question, a letter came to the editor. A short little letter. And it read this. Dear Sir, I am G.K. Chesterton. You see the difference in the answers to the very similar question, but very very different answers. Why is this so important? Why is it so important for us to, to ask this question, what's wrong with the world? Why is it imp important for us to know what's wrong with the world? Because knowing that gives us a sense as to what to give our, our attention towards. What to give our attention towards. And, and truth be told, it would seem that Mr. Chesterton was uh, getting to the issue and understanding the issues a whole lot better than many of our contemporaries as they were weighing in on, on that poll. Which takes us to now Leviticus 20. Uh, what's the problem? The problem is in here. The problem is, is in here. Leviticus 20 uh, is where we are here in the midst of our, our series uh, through this book now uh, this morning, just hitting the high points of this your first time. Uh, no, we have, this is not the 19th installment uh, or something like that. Of course, if you've been around my series, you'd know that probably wouldn't be 19. It'd probably be more like 39 or something <laughs> like that. Um, but anyway, this is just hitting the high points, and so we are in Leviticus chapter 20. And as I've done over the last several weeks, I do want to do it again. This is, it's, it's not a really long reading, but it is 27 verses, and it might be helpful to just kind of give you some, some trail markers as you go, especially to understand how this chapter is constructed it's not just starting at point A and moving to point B. It's what uh, literature students refer to as a chiasm. So you have a core central part in, in the text. Then you have parallels immediately on each side of that and parallels on immediately on the each side of that. So, and, and it builds into the middle. Okay, and I'll explain that. You'll see this as I give you the trail marker. So the outer portions both are dealing with laws against illicit Worship. That's verses 1 to 6 and then verse 27. You see the two bookends are dealing with roughly the same thing. You move inward, just, you know, two steps. Verses 7 to 8 and verses 22 to 26 are exhortations to holiness. And then you get into the middle and you see uh, laws against dishonoring parents and sexual immorality. Okay? I'll try and remember to hit those as alert you as we're moving through the, the passage. But, the, you know, that's, it's a chiasm, outward moving inward or inward moving outward, however you want to think about it. But there is some structure here that's worth noting. Okay, Leviticus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. 
And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Okay, that's the first section. That's the uh, commands pertaining to the pro prohibitions pertaining to illicit worship. We're now moving into one of those uh, exhortation towards holiness. Consecrate yourselves, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now we get into... Uh, family, uh, the dishonoring of father and mother, and then sexual immorality. That takes us uh, verses 9 through 21. Verse 9, for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Now we get into, again, exhortations to holiness, starting in verse 22 down to verse 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you out to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And then last, uh, this, this exhortation, this prohibition rather, regarding uh, illicit worship. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Well, I think we need to pray.
So let's stop here and ask for the Lord's blessing on this time in his word. Uh, Father, thank you for preserving these words uh, given through Moses so many years ago uh, to your people in that place in a very, very, very different context to be sure than our own. But nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, we still need to hear this and to wrestle with and to reckon with uh, what are the imperatives, what are the comforts uh, that we have that we can find here for us today? And we pray for your help. We need it. We need it. At first blush, this just, I'm sure for most of us here in this room, does not exactly sound like something that's going to help us this week. Uh, oh, we ask for your mercy and your grace that we indeed would see that there is much here to be found, as is in the whole of this book. Uh, and so we are asking you now to uh, not just give us ears that hear words, but ears that absorb and uh, truth that lands in the heart. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, let's be honest. Let's just be honest. We don't like this text. Uh, let's just be honest and say and reckon with the reality that there's a lot here that is offensive. If, if you were candid, many of you, perhaps most of you, would probably say something along the lines of, whoa, that sounds really severe in terms of the punishments, in terms of the penalties that are set forth here. So what do you do? What do you do when you find something in the Bible that is offensive? What do you do when you read something in Holy Scripture, Old or New Testament, whatever book, that lands on you hard, sounds severe, you can't get your head around it, and it offends you. What do you do? Let me suggest three things, okay? Just three things. We can talk about this more later if you'd like. First, ask this question. Are you sure you understand what it says? Are you sure you actually understand what it says? Keep in mind that both Old and New Testament you find several different genres of literature from an ancient historical culture that is very different than our own. Are you sure? Are you sure you understand what it's saying before you throw it out? Okay, that, that would be one question to ask. A second one would be this. Are you fixating uh, on secondary things? Are you getting sidetracked? Are you getting sidetracked? Uh, for, for instance, are, are, you, are you honing in? Are you most concerned about, say, the ancient creeds, truths that are reflected in the ancient creeds of the church, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, that sort of thing? Or are you getting fixated upon things that the church for forever has said, no, these are secondary, if not tertiary things, such as, say, the sacraments, the nature of them, or church government, or end times, or free will, or wh whatever, whatever those things are you getting fixated on secondary things? So that the first thing, are you sure you understand? Second thing, are you getting fixated on secondary things? Thirdly is, are you surprised? Surprised by what? Are you surprised that you are surprised? Are you surprised that God surprises you? Now think with me here. If indeed this is in fact God's word, and he is God and you are not, I know it's a big leap for a lot of us. If indeed he is God, and this is his word, should it surprise you that, yes, there will be a lot in here that resonate with you and you say, yay and amen, but a lot that you say, whoa, I, uh, 
should surprise you that God should surprise you. In fact, can we just be candid and, and explore it from this angle and say we should actually be suspicious. We should be suspicious if everything in here just landed and we had easy agreement all cultures at all times, all parties from whatever demographic would say, and there's no problem. That should be a, a, a mark of lack of authority, lack of authenticity, lack of reality to this. But rather, if it is in fact God's word, should it surprise you that he surprises you? Those three things. What do you do when, it offend, when you find something offensive? Just, I would encourage you, I'd plead with you, consider those questions along those lines. Do you, are you sure you understand are you getting sidetracked, and are you so, should you be surprised? Okay, let's go talk about the text, though, okay? Let's talk about the text. So, as we said last week, this section of Leviticus, where we are right now, is dealing with applying this concept of holiness to all arenas of life, okay? We're, we're moving past things that have, have to directly do with the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrifices, shifting now into this section of Leviticus where it has to do with applying holiness to every aspect of life. Last week we were in chapter 18, and chapter 18 we were looking at these commands and how explicit they were and how clear they were and what the significance of those things were. And now we get into chapter 20, a lot of those commands, you may have picked up on this, you may like, you, some of you probably thought I was rereading the same chapter. Um, chapter 20 is repeating a lot of those commands, but not just honing in on the commands, but now dealing with the punishments, the stipulations that come in ignoring, disobeying, spurning those commands, the punishments. The emphasis, and this comes out, this is why I mentioned the, the structure of the chapter, the emphasis comes out in the chiasm, the structure. You know, we, we were talking about how in the outer part you've got the worship, and in the two brackets to the section, this is the middle section, you have these exhortations to holiness. That's the emphasis of the text. That's the emphasis here of, of the text, that we are, in fact, to be who we are, a holy people. We are to be who we are, consecrated, separated, set apart for God's purposes in this world. We are to be who we are. That's the thrust. That's the emphasis of this text. And in fact, you could put it, put it this way. The Lord has, in fact, has truly called his people to a life of holiness, Truly, he has truly called us to a life of holiness, and you see that reflected not just in the commands, but the punishments. The punishments that he gives uh, attached to those commands. How so? Two things. If you've got the outline, you can see it here. Uh, first, in the penalties that are set forth and the principles that are made clear. Okay? The penalties that are set forth and the principles that are made clear. Penalties. Let's talk about this. Um, there are three basic different arenas of commands. I've alluded to this already as we began to read the passage. The first has to do with false worship. Again, keep in, remember the, the outline, the structure. Verses 1 to 6, then verse 27. We, we've seen this. Uh, the, the penalties regarding false worship. Uh, the worship of Moloch, the horrific practice. And this is not metaphor. The horrific practice of literal, physical Child sacrifice. Horrible. And the Lord is speaking against that. But not just that. He's speaking also against consulting mediums and necromancers or spiritualists uh, to try and get guidance, uh, 
to try and, and, and consult the spirits of the dead. Again, a horrific practice that he is clearly speaking against here. What's the rationale behind this? Well, first of all, regarding child sacrifice, murder. Murder of innocence, these, these children. Of course, that's spoken up against. Uh, spoken, spoken against. Um, the other, though, regarding the, the mediums and the necromancers and the spiritualists is, I think in terms of what this, the implications are, why he is offended by this, is because this is to trust in false hopes, false gods for guidance and provision and protection, all of which are things he promised. Guidance and provision and protection are the very things that the living God has promised to his people, and we're, you're going to seek it out in this way? So it's forbidden. That's the first one, false worship. The second, dishonoring of parents. That's uh, verse 9. Now, let me be very clear here. This is one of the soft targets people often point out here regarding Leviticus and say, well, that's just ridiculous. You don't understand what it's saying. This is not a reference to ordinary, daily, normal, regular, hardly glaring, unusual, typical disobedience of children. That is not what is being spoken of here. We're talking about the dishonoring of parents. We're talking about the open rebellion of an adult child who lives under your roof we're talking about a total rejection of parental instruction and authority that's what's being spoken of here when the text speaks of the dishonoring of parents okay so a lot of you kids who are young you can breathe easy you still need to obey your parents okay um, the rationale behind this. Well, think with me. Think with me as to what the context of, uh, especially then, but no, no less so today, the critical role of the family in a covenantal community to pass on the history, to pass on this is who God is, this is what he has done, to pass on the history and the instruction from generation to generation. And so implicit with that is, implied with that is, to reject the instruction, to reject parental authority is by extension to reject God. To reject God's instruction, to, to reject God's authority in your life. Hence the rationale behind the, this, the, uh, the penalty. Okay, now moving into the third. Uh, I'll call this sex as never intended. Okay, that's uh, verses 10 to 21. And uh, again, some clarifications. I gave, I gave this last week. Some of you uh, weren't here, so I just want to remind you. When the text says, uh, refers to, and it came up repeatedly here in chapter 20, it refers to an uncovering of nakedness. That is not a reference to voyeurism. It is in other contexts. Yes, it is. But certainly not here. Certainly not in the book of Leviticus. It is a euphemism, an ancient Near Eastern euphemism to refer to sexual intercourse. Okay, and so with that in mind, what Moses, what the Lord is speaking to through Moses here is he's speaking about adultery and he's speaking about incest and he's speaking about homosexuality and bestiality. Okay, that's what he's speaking of here and he describes them how. Well, did you, I don't know if you picked up on the words, but perversion, a twisting is what that means. An abomination, that which is um, detestable, reprehensible, repulsive in the sight of the Lord, a depravity, a disgrace, 
and impurity, the idea being that this is how he sees all expressions of sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? That's how he sees this. And so these are the boundaries that he has set up for our good. These are the boundaries that he has set up, and these are the penalties at that time that were to be enforced. Now, where do we see, before I move on to point two, perhaps it might be helpful to just to point, just to say, where do we see such things today? Well, false worship. Classic model has been you can drive around town and see some of these things. Fortune telling, palm reading, astrology. Those are classic forms of what you see here. Or the admixture, the syncretism of the true and the false that often comes about in what was oftentimes referred to as the New Age movement. Okay, this would be false worship. Uh, the dishonoring of parents, how do we see that? In the exaltation of youth, that, that, that they can lead the way in, in this, this sort of thing. Uh, and the denigration of the parental role in the pressure that is put upon parents all over the place, wherever you go, just open your eyes and you can see it and you can hear it, the, the, the pressure upon parents to delegate their parental task to other parties. Let them do it. Let the experts handle it. You're just a parent. That's dishonoring. It's a dishonoring of the God-given task. Uh, what about then sexual immorality? Well, I couldn't think of anything. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Where do we see that? Let me just give you two, just, just two. Obviously, a long, long list that could be chosen from. I didn't mention either one of these last week, so I'm going to mention them this week. Pornography. Okay? The crass object, objectification and denigration of, hum, of human persons. That's what that is. It is also a it causes a desensitization of the human conscience. A deadening, a deadening, a, a, a putting of, of, of layers of fat around it till you get to the point you can't feel anything. Pornography, that would be one. Another would be what is oftentimes referred to as the hookup culture. Now think of the messages. Think of the messages that are never, of course, explicit. It wouldn't, wouldn't be self-defeating. But the implied messages here would be, you know, I want to share my body with you but I'm not interested in sharing my life with you because you're not worth that. That's what you're saying in the hookup culture. I'm interested in your body and sharing mine with you, but not life because you're not worth that. With that also is the confusing and short-sighted uh, pursuit of trying to try something on that is meant for a lifelong commitment as though it was just another set of pants. That's not going to work. It's by definition impossible to try on a lifelong commitment. See, the, the Lord has called us to his people to holiness, to be a people consecrated, separated, set apart. And we see that reflected even here, not just in the commands, but in the punishments as well, which then gets us into the second point. 
the principles made clear. Okay, but, but what about the penalties? I mean, they are there. Are you just going to ignore that? No, no, I'm not going to ignore that. We can't do, do that. What we are called to adhere to, though, because we live on this side of the cross, at this point in redemptive history, is not to adhere to the penalties, but the principles that the penalties tell us about. If, if I can put it this way, what has changed? Here, a lot has changed. Israel was a theocracy. That's another way of referring to a, a kingdom in which God is king. Okay? Now that has changed. We do not live under a theocracy anymore. In fact, Israel today, you go to that part, that's not a theocracy. That has changed, but God has not. And so the, there are principles here that we can learn and need to live out of. Let me give you three. The first one being, you can see it reflected here, the seriousness of sin. And how serious indeed it is. The Lord is king. Even when he anointed and installed mortal men as his kings there in Jerusalem, as his agents, as his representatives, he still is the king. They are his eight, but his agents and representatives. And, and to sin to violate his law, to go against his command, is because he is king is to commit an act of treason. To sin, to violate God's commands, because he is king, is in fact an act of treason. How so? False worship. Okay, here's how that's reflected. It is a rejection of his promises, the promises that I mentioned earlier, to guide and to provide and to protect, saying, no, I don't want that. You're not my king. This other thing I'm pursuing is my king. That's treason. In terms of the undermining the family, whether that's in the dishonoring of the parents or the sexual immorality, that is to, because of how critical the family is in the life of the covenant community, that is to strike at the foundations, at the fundamentals of his relationship with his people. So, the seriousness here of sin and, of course, given how serious it is, this takes us to the next thing, the need to address it. Now, no one likes to, addr to address it, especially when it's uncomfortable and you have to talk about uncomfortable things and you think about how hard this would have been to carry out these sentences. Who's going to do this when you think about chapter 20? Uh, these, these punishments, justice was to be carried out, if you will, locally, which meant you could be, it could be, it could be, uh, well, in the case of stoning, you commanded to do so with a friend or a family member. Now, think about how hard that would be, how impossibly difficult that would be in the life of your community. But that's what's being called for, for here. And, and the reason being because the stakes are so high. What are the stakes? Well, let me read you this quote here from Jay Scalar. And then if, you've got, if you printed out your quotes and notes, some of the quote is, is in there. I didn't put the whole thing in there. I'm going to read a little bit further. So in his commentary on Leviticus, uh, Professor Scalar writes, In short, breaking these laws amounted to serious acts of treason against the covenant, uh, covenant king and his covenant people and were to be dealt with swiftly and seriously, not only because this was the appropriate response to treason against a king and his kingdom, but also for the sake of Israel and the world. For the sake of Israel, because dealing seriously with sin both protected the Israelites from the dangers of rebelling against the king and kept them within the sphere of the Lord's blessing and favor. 
for the sake of the world because Israel's mission was to show the world how to live in fellowship with her creator. And this could happen only if the Israelites themselves walked in close fellowship with him. This means that the seriousness of these penalties was actually strongly humanitarian. The goal was to protect the people of God so they could be a kingdom of priests to the nations, loving them, praying for them, and teaching them what it means to live in relationship with their creator. I was reminded in thinking about that quote just here this morning, uh, earlier in the morning, uh, these words from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verses... Uh, Chapter, yeah, chapter 2, sorry, First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And of course, Peter's trying to convey why it is, the function, the purpose behind that mercy. So the seriousness of sin there and the need to address it and the need to not continue in it. Why? Why not continue in it? But two things at least. One, the disintegration of life. The disintegration of life. Cornelius Plantiga in his wonderful book, uh, a, uh, not the way it's supposed to be, a breviary of sin. That's the, the subtitle. He defines sin this way, a culpable violation of shalom. A culpable violation of shalom. Shalom being the ancient Hebrew word that was oftentimes translated peace, but it means more than that. It means wholeness. It means flourishing. It means things being the way they are supposed to be, and sin is a violation of that. It is a vandalization of that. Uh, it, it is like a rupture in God's creative design. It is a virus in the software. That's what sin is. But sin brings not just disintegration to life, it also brings the judgment of God. And we see that reflected here in the passage where we, he says that I will set, not only set my face against the offender, but I will set my face against those who f are called to address the offense and fail to do so. That's how strong this is. Well, these are the principles, the principles that are made clear here, and we do need to heed it. Now, just in terms of some application before we wrap this up, you know of course, that everything that has been said over the last few minutes, most would say is regressive. The very concept of sin as a thing is regressive. It is outdated. You're a dinosaur. And so it's trivialized. It's marginalized. If you express any concern for this as a subject, as anything real, you will be said to be foolish naive but the tragedy is is that sin is a thing and it is an it is actually an act of rebellion against our creator king it is an acid that eats away at every hope this world has of any justice mercy beauty and truth that's what sin does it is like a cosmic arsonist cut loose. 
and it's in us, and it comes about through us. And we are a people called to holiness. And we see that reflected here in the commands and the punishment, which then leads me to this. Is there any hope? Are we just given this bare call and said, now good luck with that? Literally, thank God, no. There is hope. You see these tables here in front. We're about to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. A celebration, a recognition, a reminder of his amazing grace that is not just mercy to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving. Now think about the important distinction there. Not just, it's not just mercy to the undeserving, but to the ill-deserving, and that's us. That's the grace that's here, and grace is all over this passage that we've been reading here. How so? Just think with me of the penalties. What are the penalties? They are warnings. Who do you warn? People you care about. Did you catch that? Who does God care for? His people. That's why he gives the warnings that he does. We have the, 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 the reality here, just set before us here, just with the book of Leviticus, that we have a God who is not standoffish with silent indifference, but who is actively and deeply concerned so much he is saying to every one of us, turn back to me, my people. I love you. That's the God of Leviticus. We have here not just the penalty set forth, but forgiveness held forth. And you see that with all the rites and the rituals and the rules and regulations that are pointing to one who was the fulfillment of all of that. And so the Lord is saying, my people, be cleansed. You can be cleansed. You can be ransomed, redeemed from the filth and the guilt of your sin. How? Through this one. That all the... All of the rites and rituals and rules and regulations pointed towards the one that the tabernacle, think about it, the tabernacle and all that was involved, the priesthood and all that was involved, all of that was nothing but preparation for him, for Jesus. He's our hope. He is our hope. And he so cares for you this morning that he wants you to know he cares for you this morning. And that's what we have with these sensible signs and seals of the covenant in the bread and the cup, signifying and sealing that his body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you. If I can put it this way, what is the measure of our sin as we look to the cross? What is the measure of our sin? That, that, that gory, bloody spectacle, the cross, tells us it took, it took the cross to save us. That's the measure of our sin. What's the measure of his love? He took the cross to save us. He chose that because he loves you. And that's what this time is for. We're about to do, the elders are going to be standing uh, behind these tables. You guys can come on up now. Uh, they're standing behind.